I was thinking today, as we're going to talk in a few minutes about a passage that comes from John chapter 13, I was thinking how um, when I went to school, I took a course, and in my undergraduate degree, it was only six weeks long, which that's usually a course is 12 weeks long, but it was a six-week class. It was only a half a semester class on leadership. Um, that's it, by the way. Like, that's all they taught. But it's interesting because everything I... I did post-college was I learned like, hey, you should probably think about leadership and every conference you go to talks about leadership and you can't hardly find, if you go to any bookstore, there's a whole section on leadership or if you work in any industry ever, they talk about leadership. Um, and so I was thinking, why does leadership matter so much and what in the world does that have to do with the church? Well, maybe here, let's just define leadership for a second. So dictionary.com defines leadership as this, the position or function of a leader. A person who guides or directs a group. I don't know what Siri says about that, but that's what dictionary.com said. So, uh, someone Siri? Sorry. Um, but, but what that you notice in that definition is that every kind of form of leadership requires a leader. And the requirement is that there must be a person who's leading an organization or something or else it doesn't really work. Now, here's the reality. Leadership is honestly neutral. It's not good or bad. It exists. Now, based on the system or the structure or the leader, it becomes good or bad, but leadership is just a function of positions. It has to exist for there to be any kind of organizational structure of any kind. But good leaders or bad leaders, that's different. In fact, well, you and I could probably tell stories about good bosses or bad bosses, and some of you are like, I might be the bad boss. I don't know, right? Like, whatever that looks like, but we could talk about what that looks like in that. And so for me, I always come back to what are the things where I've seen good leadership or bad leadership? And I can't help but think about high school athletics. So when I was in high school, I think about two particular coaches. Uh, one coach, Jim Cook, great coach, did a really good job of empowering us and believing in us and equipping us. And, you know, he just was kind of always there trying to make you better. Um, really great coach. Our baseball coach was not. In fact, everything was always about him, no matter what it was. I don't know that he cared about any of us. He just cared about how he looked. And in fact, that eventually led to him getting fired, right? Like that over time, eventually people saw through the leadership and he lost his job over that, right? Here's the reality. We know when leadership is bad. We can't always describe why it's good. We know when we're part of organizations that are struggling. And we know when we're part of ones that are good, but it's usually... Hard to figure out exactly why some of that exists. In fact, what I've started thinking about is when it comes to following a leader or listening to the voice of others. Years ago, I, I probably only paid attention to um, the person who wrote a book, right? Were they successful? Did their business or organization grow? You know, did they sell lots of copies? What, what did that look like? But something shifted um, a few years ago when I was thinking about not only do I want to read or listen to people who are effective leaders in their fields, but I start thinking about, like, I care about the character of the person who's leading. And here's why. Over time, the person leading anything, right, even in our marriages or our homes or our families or our kids, if they're kind of messed up, if their character's not good, eventually that comes out. And it all crumbles around them. That's true of pretty much any organization, including our families. And so I was thinking, what's that look like for us to be people of character? And so I began to care a lot more about the person's character that I was listening to. I wanted, I hoped for, like, the competency. Like, that's really good. I hoped they were really good and successful and grew the organization because they had good things to share. But I wanted to know also that they were people of substance. And so I started thinking about who are the people that I've listened to over the last several years. And one of them was a guy named Timothy Keller. 
And Timothy Keller just passed away a few weeks ago, and um, <clears throat> he was known where he started a church in Manhattan in New York City, um, not the place that you think of starting churches. In fact, he was told not to start a church there, but he did anyway. And it grew to about five or 6,000 under his leadership for three decades. And um, Tim Keller would talk about um, what his role was as a leader of the church. And the cool thing about Timothy Keller was that you would listen to his like staff people at his church, and they would all say great things about him. I, I have not heard anyone who worked with him, even before he passed, say anything negative. In fact, what they would often say in interviews, I listened to one guy who's a pastor of a church in Nashville now. He talked about that when he worked for Tim Keller, the thing that most impressed him was, can you, imagine, you can imagine if you lead an organization with a few thousand people who are apart, you upset people on a regular basis. That's just what happens. And so he would get notes on a regular basis about someone was upset about this or that and upset with him about something. And so he would read those notes or listen to those conversations and he would go back to his team and he would say, is there a grain of truth in this that I need to listen to? Most of the time, his staff would go, no, this person's a quack job. You need to ignore this and not do anything they said, right? But every once in a while, they would go, no, like, we think there might be some truth to that. And so he would listen to it and try to make whatever changes were necessary one of the other things I loved about hearing about this particular story about Tim Keller was that whatever the critique or criticism was, he would then look at his team and say, hey, um, let's pray for this person. And they said sometimes he would, people would say the meanest stuff ever to him, and there he was, he would stop our staff meeting, and he would just pray for them. And he said it wasn't like, the, oh, God, help them to see the world as I see the world, help them to be like me and to stop being so dumb. It was like, God, will you bless them and help them to sense your graciousness and your love? And they said it was so genuine that we couldn't help but be impressed and amazed at what we saw in those meetings. Fast forward a couple years ago, and um, Tim Keller finally acknowledged the weight that, that he felt, the burden he felt by always choosing to try to take the high road, how much that hurt at times, and the weight of that. But he exemplified for his staff and for his team and for his church what it looked like to be a person of character, because his character was greater than his competency. And here's the reality for you and I. Our character should be greater than our competency. I'll say it again because that's really good. Our character should be greater than our competency. Because sometimes we can become proficient in what we're doing and yet not worry about what's happening inside us or the way we function, right? We can be successful but yet be a wreck inside. And what we find over time is that will come out. So there's another guy who is a leadership author. His name is Simon Sinek. Maybe you read his book, Start With Why. Uh, lots of people have read that book. Another book he wrote. Um, in fact, I was going to say it was in the mail today, but it literally showed up yesterday, so it's on my counter and it's not in the mail. Um, but here's the title of the book. That's why I was kind of mesmerized by it. Leaders Eat Last. Leaders Eat Last. Right, so I, I kind of like that because I was thinking about how often I, I've gone to meals of various kinds. Right, I get unless you're like the main person the meal is for. Often, this is you know, not 100% true, but often the person who runs to the line first is not a leader. We just notice that over and over again. And here's why, right? It's actually started the U.S. Marines. One of the things that they do is if they are like out and about and they're camping somewhere, here's the rule, the way it exists for them. That the senior men, the officers, and those who have been there longer eat last, period. And the enlisted men and those who are youngest always eat first. Period. Why? Because if someone's going to miss out, it's going to be those who are the senior ones, not the young ones. 
not the ones who do the grunt labor, not the ones who don't have value in terms of hierarchy, but, but we're going to make sure that the leaders eat last. So I love the title of the book. I don't know anymore, but here's the spoiler of the whole book, by the way. I haven't read it yet, but here's the spoiler of the book when I read all the summaries. Here it is. Great leaders take care of the people under their stewardship and focus on the well-being of their people above all else. Take care of the people under their stewardship and focus on their well-being above all else. I was thinking about one other person who often wrote a lot about leadership. In fact, he's, he's, he continues to speak and write, and he's gotten much older in life, but right, his name's John Maxwell. And so I'm going to summarize all of his leadership stuff in like one line. Leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. Right? That's what pretty much the premise of everything he has written and said is this. And so with these ideas in my head, I was thinking about this, the idea that leaders eat last, that leadership is influence, what stewardship of that look like. So if you think about if leadership is this, if it's influence and looking out for those that we steward, then literally every person at some level is a leader. Right? You lead your home, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, the cashier at the grocery store, at some level, you serve as a way that you can have influence and steward that influence. And so think about how, whether you're talking about Timothy Keller or Simon Sinek or John Maxwell, or really any successful leader who's been successful long-term in leadership, what you find again and again is this, that they borrow regularly from the one who we would say is the greatest leader who ever lived. In fact, what I'd say again is Jesus is the greatest leader who ever lived, and almost every leadership maxim or influential line that's used stems in some way, shape, or form from his life, from his teaching, or from his ministry. Here's how we talk about that. Jesus started a movement that would be argued as the greatest movement that has ever existed in the Middle East among a small group of people who are poor, and he overcame the greatest empire that has ever existed, and he transformed the cultural norms around sex or money or slavery or various other issues. He did this through his influence. Other than a time when he was a political refugee in Egypt, other than during that season of his life, he never traveled more than about 20 miles from where he was born. And yet, he's had more influence on human history than any other person who's ever existed. How then did he lead? What did his leadership look like? What can we learn from that leadership? And that's where we begin to find that his pattern of leadership that you and I are called to follow is found in John chapter 13, the first 17 verses. And here's what we find John records about the life and the teaching and ministry of Jesus. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm going, what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Sort of to picture the scene, you have to think about the way you would eat in the Middle Eastern context. You'd sit on a table, and it wasn't like a round table like we would think of, or with chairs. It was more like you were seated on the ground, and you laid on your side, and you ate with your hand. And it was more shaped like a U, and so at the bottom of the U, kind of there would be the seat of the person of prominence, or the person who was, had the most influence. So you think about the the person who would be most significant. So if you're going to have a party, the person who had the highest prestige would get the seat of honor at that table. And then it's why you'd often hear, like you'll find out even in the scriptures, people would say, well, I want to sit at the right or the left, right? Because the right or the left is right next to that person Then everyone else would fan around the U-shape. So Jesus would have normally had the seat of honor as he gathered his disciples because he was the teacher. He was the one who was going to speak and they all wanted to listen to. So in the middle of that context, Jesus, who's seated at this table, the position of prestige and influence, he gets up, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and goes from the place of prestige and influence to the place of a servant or slave. He leaves his position of power, and he decides that he's going to be the one who moves to a seat that is the opposite of where he has been or where he is capable or probably should be. See, the role of washing feet in someone's house was the role of the lowest slave, the lowest servant, the least in that place. And Jesus leaves the place of honor to go be the one to wash feet. And even in the midst of him doing that, he knows that one of them is going to betray him. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And so we see in the middle of that, he goes and he still serves him anyway. In fact... It's a reminder for us that in the midst of all that we might find in this, we begin to understand the character and nature of God in ways that we sometimes miss. What we see by Jesus' action is this, that there is no thing we can do, no place we can go, where we're beyond the redemption that Jesus offers. There is no thing we can do, no place we can go, where we're beyond the redemption that Jesus offers. Yet, as we see even in this moment, Jesus never forces us to choose to follow him. He never forces us to turn back from the ways we're going. And so Judas can continue to go the direction he's going, even though Jesus responds to him, inviting him to choose him. We get a choice in that. And then Jesus begins to wash their feet. And I was picturing in my mind what this might look like, right? They lived in an ancient world. The roads were not paved. They were dusty and dirty. And so just imagine, like, the weather we've been having all the time with no rain and, like, no, like, watered grass. Like, so imagine how dirty your feet would be. They'd be caked in dirt 
and mud and grime because you'd sweat, and then the sweat and the dirt combine, right? And your feet would just get nasty and muddy and probably crusty. And think about how, you know, when your feet are like that, and if you were to step on something, it would cut your foot a little bit, so you might have cuts and sores. And, and then if you think even more about it, right, like they didn't have great plumbing in that day, so often feces would be in the roads. And so can you imagine you walk through all of that stuff, and now Jesus begins to wash your feet. And he stoops down. And you didn't wear shoes like we wear shoes today. You wore sandals that were tied. And he's washing your feet. He takes the place of the slave and kneels down. Peter, who sees this, thinks, no way. Not this guy. Not the one who's performed miracles, who's confronted oppression, who's driven out demons, who's healed people, who's taught with authority. There's no way. The one who I said was the son of God, and he said, yep, that's right. There's no way is this guy going to wash my feet. Zero chance. He says to Jesus, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash my feet, you can have no, if I don't get to wash it, you have no part of me. And Peter goes, okay. Well, fine, if, you can't, if that's the case, then wash my head and my hands too. Just give me a bath. You know, like whatever it takes. I'm all in then. But here's the problem with what Peter does there. What Peter models in this conversation is two different types of pride. I mean, really, a few more, honestly. The first one is like that I'm too proud for you to serve me. I serve people. You don't serve me. Right? It's like if it's in context, like it's if, if someone, you go to dinner with someone, and they always pay and you like are always angry about it because they want to serve you. That's, that's on you, right? That's your desire to reject their compassion, right? I'm too proud to be served. The other side of this is like sometimes we feel we're unworthy. Like Peter knows who this is. Like my pride says, I'm not even worthy for you to serve me in that way. I, I am definitely not worthy. Do you know who I am? Like I am definitely not worthy of your love in that way. I have to reject that. There's no way. Or maybe we're too proud of being humble. Oh, no, I only serve people. You don't get to serve me. Or whatever it might be, is Peter's pride gets in the way. In fact, it gets in the way so much that first he rejects Jesus' offer, and then he tells him how he's going to do it. Or he says, nope, you're not going to wash feet. Okay, well, then fine. Then here's how I want you to do it. He's like, I didn't offer that. I said I was going to wash your feet. I didn't say I was washing your head and your hands. Like, you're throwing that in, man. So some of our Peter's pride then says, well, then I'm going to tell you how you're going to do this. And probably some of us fall somewhere in those categories where we reject God's advance or we're going to tell God how he's going to act. And we're shocked that it doesn't always work out the way it is because, you know, here's the reality. Um, some of us, we, we're proud of being humble or we like standing on our own two feet and like leading and being in charge and we'll take care of it and we don't need anybody else's help. Um, or maybe we find that we see things as beneath us. Jesus didn't. Nothing was beneath him. He took the role of the slave, the lowest slave, to do this task. See, often we like the idea, and the scripture says that those who follow Jesus will be kings and priests. We're all in on that idea. But the idea of becoming a slave, ooh, don't really like that part. But this self-emptying act is the reality of what we find is it draws us closer and closer to who Jesus actually is because too often our dignity and our pride and our desire, they get in the way of us becoming all that God has called us to be. And so his pride prevented him from receiving Jesus' gift. But maybe, maybe just maybe, we begin to see who Jesus actually is. 
Maybe just maybe we begin to recognize his love and his grace and his mercy. Maybe we just begin to understand that his love overflows to us. Maybe we begin to recognize that God loves us with love beyond our imagination. We've come to believe that's actually true, and yet we still reject it at some level because we'll say things or do things like this. Well, I've just got to get my life right before I can come to Jesus. I'm just not worthy. Well, I can't be a part of a church yet because, like, I... I'm just such a mess. I can't go there. But here's the reality. We kind of flip those things upside down. We live and speak and act from that perspective because we don't get made right and then go to Jesus. It is Jesus who makes us right. It is the work of his spirit in our life because that's another upside down thing in the way of his kingdom because so often in life we have to figure out how to do something, learn the job, learn the trade, learn the skill, and then go do the job. But in God's kingdom, we come to him with open arms, and he transforms us over time. And he will change who we are. It's Jesus who says, come to me as you are. It's Jesus who stoops to us, comes to us, serves us. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's who he is. Because so often, just like Peter, you and I recognize the way things are, and they don't make sense of the way things God calls them to be. Right? In fact, one scholar put it this way, there is no parallel in ancient literature of a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. It didn't happen. But Jesus did. So I was thinking about what does servant leadership look like in our lives or in the world around us. I was thinking um, about, I was in college one time, and I was writing a paper. I was home for a weekend, and um, I put, my parents didn't have a printer at their house, and so I had written this paper, and I need to get it printed, and so the church had a printer, and and so uh, my grandfather had an office there, and he said, yeah, you can go use it. That's fine. So I took off for the church, and I took my floppy disk, uh, not the real floppy one, but the hard floppy disk. Some of you knows what those are. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I took my floppy disk, it's like pre-thumb drive. I took the floppy disk to the church, I was going to put it in, and I walk in, and there's what I see. I see my grandfather um, standing there in his dress pants, because he always wore dress pants. And, and he's got his shirt off, and I realized in my notes, if I didn't add to that, you're going to be like, that's really weird. But he had his like, white undershirt under his dress shirt. So there he is, he's got bathroom doors on sawhorses, and he's sanding them down in the church foyer. And I don't remember if this was right before he retired or right after he retired. And people are like, oh, well, it was like a really small church. Like, no, it was several hundred people went to that church at the time. And, and he, there he is, sanding down doors. No one would have known he was doing it. It was like a Saturday. But I walked in and saw it. And it's always stood out to me as a marker. Well, that's what it looks like to, to, to serve. Or, or maybe you need a more contemporary picture of what it looks like to be a servant leader. Um, so I'm an Indianapolis Colts fan, and this year they drafted a quarterback. His name's Anthony Richardson. I don't know anything about Anthony Richardson other than I'm not sure it was the right pick. That's a whole other conversation. However, I heard a story a couple weeks ago I read online about um, the NFL does this, this draft, NFL draft prospect lunch, where they talk about, hey, don't do these things. They'll get you in trouble. Do these things. They'll keep you out of trouble. Here's what you should do with your money. Here's what you shouldn't do with your money. All those kind of things. And so they cater the lunch because they want all these players to come and eat, and if they feed them, they'll stay. And, and so at the end of the meal, Anthony Richardson was the only player left, and he was helping the caterers clean up the meal. Now, I don't know if he's going to be any good as a football player, but I have some respect for what he did. Like, he didn't have to do that. Everybody else left. He didn't. Maybe he just wanted great PR. I don't know, but no one else did. So apparently, maybe it's just who he is. 
But what that does remind us is both those stories, here's the reality. Leaders lead by example. Leaders lead by what they do. I mean, our words matter, and that's a part of how we lead as we speak. But if our words don't match our actions of our life, then it doesn't count as leadership. But leaders lead by example. And this brings us back to Jesus washing the feet of other people. Jesus, who knew all things were under him, still stooped as low as he could to perform this act. He says to Peter, you're clean, though not every one of you. One of the most impactful things here, even though he knows Judas' betrayal. Jesus' hospitality wasn't dependent upon the response of the disciple. The reality for you and I is our hospitality towards others, the way we serve other people, should not be dependent upon their response. Even if they betray us, even if they reject us, that doesn't change our role to be people who serve as Jesus served. Here's the reality. It's not that the disciples were perfect when he says this to them, but what he's saying is this, that your hearts are right, even if you don't always have perfect action, your hearts are right. Like you have the right heart in what you're doing, even if the action doesn't always follow in the right way. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Peter and Judas, we can kind of compare and contrast them for just a moment. Peter is the one who is impetuous, did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and Judas is the one who seemed more put together often, but his heart wasn't right at all, so much so that, in fact, that he's the one who betrays Jesus and basically takes his own life. Peter, on the other hand, was a wreck, but his heart wanted to follow after Jesus with all that he was. And so he kept coming back to that place again and again. So it wasn't the right heart, doesn't mean perfect action, but it means that we'll be transformed over and over again and we'll allow God to make our hearts right. And that's what makes us pure or clean, the work of his spirit in and through us. And here's the reality for you and I. Whether it's at school, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's with our neighbors or whatever it might be, In God's kingdom, for us to lead well, we must follow well. In God's kingdom, for us to lead well, we must follow. It means we have to be committed to following after the way and the teaching and the life of Jesus. Are we living in the way in which he taught his followers to live? Are we living as his kind of people? And so Jesus, after he'd washed his disciples' feet, he went back to the seat of honor, and he sat there and he says, Do you know what I have done for you? I mean, the obvious answer is I, I would probably say, because sometimes I can be a smart aleck, I would have said, well, yeah, you just washed dirty, stinky feet. <laughs> what do you mean what you do? I, you just washed our feet. But what he's really trying to get across is this, is that's not the answer he was hoping for. Do you know what I've done for you? That I've taken the lowest place so you can see what it looks like to live as people who follow after me. In fact, as Scott Daniels put it, he says this, the foot washing dramatically represented Jesus' death as an act of incomparable love that would cleanse his disciples. He then says, if I, your teacher and your Lord. Teacher, the word here is rabbi. Right? Jesus was the rabbi. It's the most common phrase used to describe him all throughout the Gospels. Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher. Right? In the ancient world, if you were a follower of a rabbi, of a teacher, in fact, even if you were a follower of a rabbi in New York or some other place today, you would follow them as closely as you could because you don't want to miss anything they said or did. You would stay as close as possible. That's why one of the phrases is, you want to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. You want to be so close that when they kicked up the dust on those dirty roads, that you were covered in it because you would hear and be able to listen and see everything that they did. 
So, so if I, your rabbi, the one you desire to follow in every aspect of your life, if I, the Lord, the one who, right, the Lord is a divine name, and I would, I would say Caesar is Lord, if you, the one who I would say is your teacher and your Lord, would kneel down, stoop down, and wash your feet, how do you think you are called to live? So Jesus sets an example for them about the way in which they're called to live. In fact, the text says this, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The pattern that Jesus set for his followers around the table is the pattern you and I are called to embrace and to follow as well. Now, here's the reality. You may never need to wash someone else's feet. That's why I thought about, like, washing someone's feet this morning, but, like, it's not the point to wash feet. There's a reason we don't do it every day. But you might need to clean someone's toilet. You might need to clean up their vomit. You might need to hold someone who's dying. You might need to go do the most uncomfortable thing that you've ever thought of. That might be what you're called to do. The pattern and the example that Jesus set for us is what does it look like to do the thing that the least of these do? Is there, is there something that's too far below you that you won't do? Because if there is and you think of it, that's probably what you're called to do. What he's saying is there's nothing, nothing below you or beneath you that you're not willing to do because when you do those things that seem beneath you or seem below you or seem like the least of these do them, then you're living as I live. That is the example or the pattern I have set for you. Or the words of N.T. Wright talk about this text. He says this, where the world's needs and our vocation meet is where we ought to be. Ready to take on insignificant roles if that's what God wants or be publicly visible if that is our calling. Where you go every day, whether it be at home or school or work, or in your backyard, with your neighbors, that's where you're called to wash feet. And it may rarely be actually washing feet, although maybe that is one. But we are called to do what Jesus did, to recognize there's nothing beneath us, there's no thing we won't do that is the overflow of love. This is how we follow him. We do what he did. The self-emptying love of Jesus, which permeates from the self-emptying love of God, is what we are called to embrace and embody and to become. Right? Foot washing helps believers know it's not about the giving up of one's life, but the giving away of one's life. Not the giving up, but the giving away. You are choosing to do so. Right, today, um, today is Trinity Sunday, which means nothing for most of you. Um, but on the church calendar, it's called Trinity Sunday. So, and we're talking about the seasons of the year. This is Trinity Sunday. It's where we celebrate the mystery and the faith and the unity of the Holy Trinity. The Trinity reveals to us the very character and nature of God. It is relational and self-emptying. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Relational and self-emptying is God is in relationship with himself and invites us into this relationship. And so what we begin to find is this. God overflows love in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And you and I 
Everybody, to receive the overflow of God's self-emptying love that we see embodied in Jesus, who is God in flesh. To live from this idea that we're invited into the overflow of God's love. And once we've experienced God's love, we're invited to then be givers of God's love. Once we've experienced the self-emptying love of God, we're called to then give that self-emptying love. Jesus modeled the fullness of self-emptying love in his crucifixion on the cross. And you and I are invited to live in such a way that we do the same. So we go back to the beginning of this text. It says they were... It was before Passover, so there's some debate, but most scholars would agree that this was probably the night before the Last Supper. It's the night before the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus gathered with his disciples, and he gathered around a table, and he says, do you want to know who God is? God will lay himself open in love for you. You know who God is, that he'll take bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you, take and eat. In the same way he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. What he's saying is this, that I will empty myself of all my love I have for you and my grace will extend to you wherever you are. There is no thing you can do, no place you can go where you are not invited in to know my love. And do you want to know what it looks like? It looks like servant leadership to lay oneself bare for the sake of the other, to recognize it doesn't matter their response, but it does matter my heart. And so you and I are invited to that same table to say, God, we recognize that there is no thing I can do that can separate me from your love. I can choose to reject you. But if I choose to embrace you as Jesus, as Lord, or in the words of Jesus, as teacher and Lord, if I choose to embrace you as the one who guides my life, then I'll recognize my desperate need for your grace and for your mercy and your love, and I'll come to the table, and I'll say yes to you. I'll say, I want to receive the overflow of your love. I want to come to that place where your love begins to overflow in me and through me. I was thinking about uh, years ago, I spoke at a camp in Manton, um, Michigan, which is, so there's this free Methodist campground there, and I spoke a few years ago. And, and I'll never forget, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but there was a youth pastor who was there. And, and so we took communion, the same way we're going to take it today, um, or there's cups in the back, but, but we took it by intinction, where you take a piece of bread, and you dip it in the cup, and then you eat it. And someone says to you, the body of Christ, and someone else says to you, the blood of Christ for you. And this guy is like super stoic, kind of like monotone, like Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. I mean, like that's just, like he just was like no change in voice at all. And so it was kind of fascinating, and, and he's like just weeping. And I, I went up to him afterward, and, and I'm you okay? Because, um, yeah, it was just so beautiful. I'm like, okay, what part? He goes, as I was holding the cup, like when students would dip their bread, it, the juice just kept spilling all over my hands. It was dripping all over me. And, and he said, and at first it kind of bothered me because I was like, that's, I mean, it's not that hard, guys, like to dip and just move your hand. like. It. And then something like kind of snapped inside me and it reminded me that this is what God is like. That his grace just kind of overflows whatever boundaries we think God's grace fits in. It just overflows that, and it extends beyond. His love is more, it can't be contained in a cup. It just keeps going out and overflowing from where, where it has been. And this is the reality for you and I. You and I are invited to come to the table to receive his grace and his love, which just keeps overflowing. It cannot be contained. 
And if we have received that love and that grace, and you and I are called to live in such a way that it cannot be contained in us either, and it must overflow from who we are. But sometimes we know we don't look like the overflow of God's love, and so we keep coming to the table and keep allowing his spirit to transform us. So this morning, I'm going to pray and then invite anyone who wants to come to come to the table to say yes to Jesus. Yes to following after him. Yes to receiving his grace. Yes to receiving the overflow of his Trinitarian love and living from that place and saying yes to him and saying, I want to live like Jesus lived. I want to follow him with my whole life. But I know I, I have to keep coming to the table. I have to keep coming to receive his grace. So this morning, if that's you, I invite you to come as we take communion in just a few moments. Father, will you help us today? to be the kind of people who find ourselves so committed to you that we've surrendered all things, that we recognize that we, have, we would empty ourselves to receive all that you would have to give us. And so this morning we pray that you would help us in this endeavor, that you would help us to be the kind of people who come to know the fullness of your love and your grace and your mercy, that we would come to the table and we would recognize that your love overflows to us, that in Jesus' self-emptying act of love on the cross, it reflects the very character and nature of God. And we are invited to receive that love. So may we receive it and be givers of it. May we love and lead in the way in which your son did as servants. As we pray this all in your son Jesus' name.